A Mucky Business with Tim Farron. Hello, I'm Tim Farron. This is A Mucky Business. It's the show which delves into the mucky business of politics through the eyes of Christians. You might well think that politics is tainted by compromise and sin. And yes, you would be right. But then again, so is everything else since the fall. And I think we should be praying in an informed way for our brothers and sisters who operate in and around the world of politics. So today we're going to be joined by the right Reverend Kenneth Novakovsky. He is the bishop for the Ukrainian Catholic community in Great Britain. We're going to get his reflections on the two year anniversary of the conflict between Ukraine and Russia. But before that, we don't realise how strong we actually are. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing. These are the words of Alexei Navalny, one of Russia's most well-known opposition politicians of recent times, who is reported to have died in a penal colony last week. The circumstances of his death are uncertain and his family are yet to see his body. He was serving 19 years imprisonment on charges of extremism, widely and internationally considered to be politically motivated, for his vocal criticism of Vladimir Putin's regime. He was imprisoned in the IK3 penal colony in the Arctic Circle, where temperatures go as low as minus 20 degrees and where the prison discipline is known to be brutal. In 2022, he spent nearly 300 days in solitary confinement. Navalny gained prominence as a politician who vigorously exposed corruption in Russian politics. He was for a while an embarrassing thorn in the side of the Putin regime until he and his team gave evidence of the personal wealth of Putin and his closest allies. He was from then on viewed as a serious threat to Putin's power, as many young followers responded to his activism, questioning the viability of the 2012 elections and taking to the streets in protest. Eventually, his campaign was outlawed and he was charged as an extremist. Navalny was admired for his humour and sarcasm throughout immense suffering, even passing witty messages from prison to his lawyers full of his dark sense of humour. His courage is also undeniable. He chose to return to Russia from Germany after a close-run attempt on his life with a deadly Novichok nerve agent, which was later used in the Salisbury poisonings on another Russian dissident. He returned to Russia in the full knowledge that he will be arrested upon landing, separated from his family and imprisoned with no guarantee for his safety. But as the Times obituary put it, he knew that Russians admire the uncompromising. So return, he did. A friend pointed out to me this weekend that in later life, Navalny stated publicly that he was a Christian. In his public statement during his 2021 trial, he is reported to have gone into some detail explaining his Christian faith. Like much of the activist movement, he had been originally, in his own words, quite a militant atheist and recognised that his new faith set him up for ridicule by his own political friends and allies. He seems to speak of a weight lifted from his shoulders because of the clarity of the Bible. He said, but now I am a believer and it helps me a lot in my activities because everything becomes much, much easier because there is a book in which, in general, it is clearly written what action to take in every situation. It's not always easy to follow, but I am actually trying. As I said, it's easier for me, probably, than for many others to engage in politics. Navalny cited the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And said, 
I've always thought that this commandment is more or less an instruction to activity. I wouldn't want to put words in his mouth. I, of course, did not know Alexei Navalny, and these are only his reported words from a friendly publication. But in the clarity of the Bible's instruction, he appeared to have found both a spur to action and a real kind of satisfaction in doing what was required of him. In the courageous example of Alexei Navalny, what can Western Christians learn? In our relative comfort, can we understand the peace he had in following his conviction and boldly stating where those convictions came from, even though it both put him at odds with the authorities who opposed him and even brought criticism and incredulity from his own allies? Imagine what it must have taken to board that flight back to Russia, trading in his freedom and family life for an uncertain future in a penal colony. Navalny shows a lesson in persistence and perspective too. He did not see the fall of Putin's regime in his lifetime, yet he was still prepared to fight with whatever he had, even if it was with letters to his lawyers from a freezing prison cell. Many of us in politics may not live to see the grave injustices in our context ended for good. Are we still prepared to act? To end, let's remember the words of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. So now kings be wise, receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Like Navalny, can we rest in the sure knowledge of God's sovereignty, even amidst awful circumstances, while still resolving to hunger and thirst for righteousness wherever God has placed us and with whatever God has put in our hands? A mucky business with Tim Farron. Well, so to our guest this week, the Right Reverend Kenneth Novakovsky, who is the bishop to the Ukrainian Catholic community here in Great Britain. Uh, bishop Kenneth, you're very welcome. Thank you. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's great to be with you too. And you've been the Bishop of the Ukrainian Catholic Diocese here in London since 2020. Now, you are a Ukrainian Canadian. So tell me a bit more about that. Well, you're right. I've, I've been the Bishop here in London for uh, four years. My anniversary date is the 21st of March 2020. And if we remember what was happening way back then, it was just uh, covid slight restrictions and then three days after my enthronement here in London the full restrictions happened and my staff uh, all went home and said you'll be all right it's only going to be two weeks bishop there's (laughs) food in the deep freeze I uh, before being here I was the bishop for Ukrainian Catholics in British Columbia located in in Vancouver actually in the city of New Westminster (laughs) which was the first capital of British Columbia And uh, my family emigrated from Ukraine to Canada in the late 1890s and settled on uh, the Prairie Provinces. And I grew up living on a farm and uh, eventually went to study theology in Rome. And uh, shortly after my ordination in 1989, I was asked to move with the then head of the Ukrainian Catholic Church living in exile in Rome to Ukraine. So I lived there from 1991 to 2001. So tell me a little bit about what led you to a personal faith and then what led you into 
the church? Well, I certainly grew up in a in a Ukrainian Catholic family. We, um, I would say, practiced our faith. Uh, we went to church as often as we could. We lived on our farm, which was uh, some distance from the local Ukrainian Catholic church. And so uh, I grew up in it. And and I would say it was a very gradual uh, awakening, awakening and experience. After graduating from high school, uh, I knew I wanted to do something, um, but I wasn't sure it was the priesthood. So I went uh, and studied advertising and public relations. And I worked in that industry for a little while. And then I, I was working actually at a non-governmental um, uh, agency that was mm. assisting political refugees uh, coming to Canada, helping them get jobs, or people who uh, were on social assistance, universal credit. Mm. And my boss, uh, a wonderful, wonderful boss, uh, her name was Jean, she kept saying to me, Ken, I think you got a vocation to the priesthood. I think <laughs> you're looking at that. And um, uh, my local parish priest, a very wonderful man, Father Volodymyr, uh, he kept saying to me, so what are you going to do when you grow up? And I would tell him, I'm I'm in my 20s. I think I've grown <laughs> up. And he says, no, I think you should be a priest. And so I went and talked to the local bishop in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and uh, talked about my journey of faith, talked about possible vocation. And so he sent me to Rome to study. And um, uh, it was a great experience. The university, the courses that I took at the Pontifical Inst uh, University of St. Thomas Aquinas, the Angelicum, was a wonderful experience. And uh, and uh, I, again, I was ordained a priest in 1989, um, have served in various capacities in Ukraine, as well as I was the rector in Ottawa in our Ukrainian Catholic Seminary, which is a place where uh, men go for formation for the priesthood for six years, and I was um, uh, finished my term there and was going back to be a parish priest in Saskatoon, and then I got a call from the Vatican, from the Pope's representative, the nuncio, telling me that the Pope uh, wanted to appoint me bishop for Ukrainian Catholics in British Columbia. And that's that's really my story. Uh, it was... Um, yeah. A lot of people along the way praying for me. My mother uh, had uh, has a, a cousin who uh, is in a monastic community. She's a nun. And I would say in the days before uh, social communication, she would send me a letter almost every week telling me how she's praying for me, that I'd make such a wonderful priest. And so I, I credit prayer as well, uh, prayer and support of others. Right. Now, I'm so throughout your time in the church constantly being drawn a calling it would appear to serve ukrainian people either diaspora in canada in the uk and indeed obviously ukrainians in in the country of ukraine itself tell me a little bit though about your current role so you are uh here in the uk you're the bishop of the ukrainian catholic community in great britain Tell me a little bit about the Ukrainian diaspora in the UK and in London in particular. I would say prior to the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, which uh, our second anniversary is coming up to on the 24th of February, we probably had somewhere around 60,000 Ukrainians living in the UK. Uh, how many um, faithful that translated 
in two is is somewhat hard to estimate, but I would say certainly around 10,000 um, people were coming to our churches or considering themselves Ukrainian Catholic. Mm. With the full-scale invasion, we've seen uh, a fair significant increase. For example, at our cathedral here in London, we have over 3,000 people coming to our church uh, on a Sunday. And in the last um, year and a half, two years, I've established three new parishes in the city of London as well, which are fairly well attended. I mean, just as an example, last year we recorded over 260 baptisms at the cathedral alone. Mm. We have a very young community here, um, a very young priesthood. Uh, I'm probably one of the oldest priests in 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 the diocese. Uh, I'm almost 66, <laughs> and um, the majority of our clergy are, I would say, under the age of 45. A mucky business with Tim Farron. We're joined by the Right Reverend Kenneth Novakovsky, the Bishop to the Ukrainian Catholic Community in Great Britain. Um, Bishop, we we've looked up the diaspora in the UK and how it's increased significantly since the war which began on the 24th of February 2022. So we mark the second anniversary of Putin's illegal invasion of the Ukraine just this coming Saturday. How has the war in Ukraine impacted upon those people, the Ukrainian people in the UK? Well, the impact has been very um, great. We know that over 240,000 Ukrainians have arrived in the UK since the full-scale invasion on the various um, schemes that the government has brought in, including Homes for Ukraine. And the Homes for Ukraine meant that when people would come here, they would be automatically sponsored by ordinary citizens welcoming them into their homes for not just a weekend, but it's uh, some have been for over a year. And so that means that probably around 50 or 60,000 ordinary British citizens have welcomed these uh, people fleeing harm's way. The Certainly it's, uh, it's brought up the number of uh, people of Ukrainian ancestry to over uh, 300,000. In the UK, and that's a significant number. The impact um, on the local community has meant, of course, that everybody has had to, in a sense, mobilize, become very active, um, thinking and caring um, for ways how they can care for our brothers and sisters who have arrived here. So with the assistance of the Association of Ukrainians in Great Britain, our diocese has opened up a welcome center at our cathedral and repeated similar such centers in about 30 communities throughout uh, England and uh, Scotland and Wales to assist both the people who have sponsored Ukrainians and also uh, those fleeing harm's way that have arrived, providing them with uh, um, English language courses, um, uh, an ability to uh, uh, know how to register for NHS, for the schools, for um, look for jobs, this type of thing. And mm -hmm. so it's been a, a not just a, a, a Ukrainian community effort. I think that we've seen in general 
how mm. so many other agencies and uh, church groups mm. uh, and uh, different faiths have come together to help um, in many ways the newly arrived Ukrainians. Now, you were in Ukraine itself quite recently, just before Christmas. How would you describe life there at the moment, particularly for those in the church? Well, certainly one of the things that we can see is that um, whether it's the Ukrainian Catholic Church or the Roman Catholic Church or the various um, um, uh, other evangelical churches and also the Ukrainian um, Orthodox Church under Archbishop Epifani, they've remained in place in their cathedrals, in their churches, um, helping those who have lost so much. Um, certainly one of the sad tasks of those um, priests and ministers has been funerals. Mm. When you look at the cemeteries in Ukraine, it's just heartbreaking how many new graves there are. Of mm. course, um, the thousands of men and women who have died defending Ukraine, those who have uh, died because of the bombings, the children, but also many people are dying just because they don't have access to ordinary normal life-saving drugs like uh, high blood pressure pills or insulin, cancer drugs, etc. Uh, how it's how it's impacting the people in Ukraine, you know, I found them still extraordinary, extraordinarily resilient. They they know why they are fighting. Uh, if Ukraine stops fighting, Ukraine will be wiped off the map. Mm. If Russia stops fighting, if Putin ends uh, the war, the war will end. Mm. Um, people, of course, even though they're resilient, you can see a, a sense of tiredness. I think that when national leaders and Christian leaders like Justin Welby, Archbishop of Canterbury, go to Ukraine, not as war of tourists, but to show their support and solid solidarity with Ukraine yeah. and the people, I think it's an, a very important um, event. It shows that the people of Ukraine, that they haven't been forgotten, that the West cares about them, and they realize that this struggle is not just a struggle for Ukraine, but it's, it's a struggle for um, democracy, rule of law, and, and really uh, a battle for the world. And so for Ukrainian Christians, particularly those in Ukraine, what is it you think they want us to know, particularly in the West, and to know about their plight and what do they want us to do well certainly um i think they want us to pray for them i think prayer is um very key don't forget them uh, shortly after the death of her majesty the queen i uh, traveled to ukraine and met with many church leaders and uh, uh people involved in charities uh, like caritas ukraine or um, who are partners of various organizations here in the West, including CAFRD. But um, I was celebrating a mass, a liturgy in Irpin, which uh, Irpin and Bucha were one of the two um, suburbs, as it were, of, of the capital, where we first discovered the atrocities that the Russian soldiers had committed, the horrible war crimes. Hmm. And I spent uh, time being with the people there, listening to them, hearing what they had to go through. And uh, towards the end, I said, um, do you have any questions for me? And the first question was quite startling. 
the question was, tell us what King Charles is like. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was a sign that even though these people had endured and were enduring such horrific times, they hadn't isolated themselves from the rest of the world. Mm. And one of the other comments that was made to me was, please don't forget us. Tell people back in the UK to remember us, to pray for us. Tell them how grateful we are for the support that they're giving us. And I think that... Um, what we can be doing also as Christians, uh, we want our leaders, our civil leaders to bring peace in the world. Mm. But uh, I think the big thing is what we can be doing is ensuring that in our homes, in our streets, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, that we are people of peace. Mm. Because we're not going to have leaders come about who didn't grow up in a, in a family that values peace in a community that values peace. And so the big thing that we can be doing for our children and future generations is to be people of peace, to pray for peace, to pray for that grace that God can give us. And we wonder, don't we, I guess, in terms of Christians of all denominations uh, living faithfully and living publicly, maybe that is um, the most powerful rebuke to Putin in his deployment of the language of holy war, uh, which he has sought to use to whip up the Russian people and to justify his invasion, our best answer to that is to live uh, in a in a godly way, to live faithfully and to do so publicly. Um, Bishop, it's an absolute joy to have you with us. I wish we had an awful lot longer. Um, we want to thank you very much for um, for your love and care of Ukrainian diaspora here in the UK and for bringing the plight of Ukrainians, particularly Ukrainian Catholics uh, in Ukraine today to our attention and your uh, cry on their behalf uh, for us to not forget them and to pray for them is something that I, and I'm sure all our listeners will be taking uh, very seriously to heart. Bishop, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much and God bless you and God bless all of the listeners. Each week, we give you the opportunity for you to ask any question you'd like about this mucky business of politics. It may be about how an aspect of this world impacts us Christians who work within it, or maybe there's a particular issue that you're struggling to make sense of. Well, I would love to hear from you and attempt an answer at least. So please drop me an email to farron at premier.org.uk. This week, James has been in touch and he says this. We're getting closer and closer to a general election and it got me thinking. When was the last time we had an election where Brexit wasn't the dominating issue? So what do you expect to be the thing that wins votes this year? James, great question. I suspect, well, certainly the last two elections, 19 and 17, Brexit were hugely dominating issues. Before that, Europe certainly was in the background and it will not be, I suspect, the key issue this time round, though, of course, I could be wrong. It is said, isn't it, that, gov uh, that oppositions don't win elections, governments lose them. My current feeling, I'm trying to be as neutral as possible here, and of course I could be totally wrong, but my current feeling, this is an election that this government is losing rather than the opposition winning. It tends to happen throughout time. It happened to Gordon Brown um, the moment that he bottled, to use the pejorative, uh, the 20, 2007 election that wasn't. It happened to John Major on Black Wednesday, if we go back to the early 90s. 
it happened to Nick Clegg almost as soon as tuition fees became a thing. There comes a moment when the electorate stops listening to you. And I feel possibly the whole Liz Truss budget thing a year and a half ago was the moment that the uh, country decided the Conservatives had had their time. I could be wrong. So my sense is that we're going to see an election where the focus is on getting rid of the government. By the way, a quick parenthesis here, that might work against the SNP in Scotland because they too are incumbent. But the thing I think worries me the most and that should perhaps worry Christians the most is that I see potentially a disgruntled electorate kicking out a government that they're fed up with, but not being particularly happy with what they get instead. And we may end up with a period of restlessness, of people not being easily satisfied, people not giving a new government any kind of a honeymoon, and therefore people may be looking for simplistic, populist, even extreme alternatives, people offering simple solutions to complex problems, which are rarely, rarely the right ones. So I do fear for what happens after the election, but I suspect the major uh, dominating issue of the next few months will be a sense of uh, we don't like this government and we'd like rid of them. I could, of course, be wrong. If you have a question for Tim, email farron at premier.org.uk. Well, let's end our time together, as we always do, in prayer. Loving Heavenly Father, we bring to you Ukraine. It is two years in a few days' time since Russia under Putin invaded Ukraine. Uh, we cry out to you for justice. Uh, we pray that the West and all countries around the world that value freedom um, would not forget the people of Ukraine and would continue to support them in every way. Uh, we know we will not see justice completely done in our lifetime. We trust you that you are sovereign, Lord. But we do ask for justice. We do uh, cry out to you that the aggressor would be rebuked and repelled. We do pray that those who are offended against will be vindicated. And we pray for your help. We pray for your hand in Ukraine and Russia to bring about justice and to bring about peace, to end the death, to end the suffering and to bless and comfort those who mourn. And Lord, we pray for the church. We pray for those who believe in your name, Lord Jesus, in Ukraine and who are from Ukraine uh, to be faithful to you and to be a towering uh, and attractive witness to the truth of the gospel. And Lord, we cross over the border, so to speak, and we think of uh, Yulia Navalny and uh, all those members of Navalny's, Alexei Navalny's family who grieve his death. We pray for um, the family to receive his body and there to be a funeral. And I pray, Lord, that um, you would strengthen uh, Yulia Navalny and the family at this moment. We are encouraged to hear that Alexei Navalny um, was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray that he will be safe now um, and in your hands, the safest hands of all. We pray for his family that they too would trust in your name and that that witness would also be something which is powerful throughout Russia and beyond. And we pray for peace. We pray for justice. We pray for millions to come to know you who do not already. Um, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this week's show. Don't forget, you can catch up on past episodes which feature interviews with party leaders, former government ministers and MPs from all the major parties. Just search for A Mucky Business on your chosen podcast provider or head to premier.plus forward slash A Mucky Business. Thanks so much for joining us. Mm -hmm.